Section 4. The Servants of God, The Inn, The Glory Hole, of On a Chinese Screen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. On a Chinese Screen by W. Somerset Maugham. Chapters 8 to 10. 8. The Servants of God. They were sitting side by side, two missionaries, talking to one another of perfectly trivial things, in the way people talk who wish to show each other civility, but have nothing in common. And they would have been surprised to be told that they had certainly one admirable thing in common, goodness, for both had this also in common, humility, though perhaps in the Englishman it was more deliberate, and so, if more conspicuous, less natural than it was in the Frenchman. Otherwise the contrasts between them were almost ludicrous. The Frenchman was hard on eighty, a tall man, still unbent, and his large bones suggested that in youth he had been a man of uncommon strength. Now his only sign of power lay in his eyes, immensely large, so that you could not help noticing their strange expression and flashing. This is an epithet often applied to the eyes, but I do not think I have ever seen any to which it might be applied so fitly. There was really a flame in them, and they seemed to emit light. They had a wildness which hardly suggested sanity. They were the eyes of a prophet in Israel. His nose was large and aggressive. His chin was firm and square. At no time could he have been a man to trifle with, but in his prime he must have been terrific. Perhaps the passion of his eyes bespoke battles long fought out in the uttermost depths of his heart, and his soul cried out in them, vanquished and bleeding, yet triumphant, and he exulted in the unclosed wound which he offered in willing sacrifice to the Almighty God. He felt the cold in his old bones, and he wore wrapped about him like a soldier's cloak a great fur, and on his head a cap of Chinese sable. He was a magnificent figure. He had been in China for half a century, and thrice he had fled for his life when the Chinese had attacked his mission. I trust they won't attack it again, he said smilingly, for I am too old now to make these precipitate journeys. He shrugged his shoulders. Je serai matar. He lit a long black cigar and puffed it with great enjoyment. The other was very much younger. He could not have been more than fifty, and he had not been in China for more than twenty years. He was a member of the English Church Mission, and he was dressed in a grey tweed suit and a spotted tie. He sought to look as little like a clergyman as possible. He was a little taller than the average, but he was so fat that he looked stumpy. He had a round, good-natured face with red cheeks and a grey moustache of the variety known as toothbrush. He was very bald, but with a pardonable and touching vanity he had grown his hair long enough on one side to be brought over the scalp, and so give himself at all events the illusion that his head was well covered. He was a jovial fellow, with a hearty laugh, and it rang out loudly, honest and true, when he chafed his friends or was chafed by them. He had the humor of a schoolboy, and you could imagine him shaking in all his bulk when someone slipped on a piece of orange peel but the laughter would be stopped, and he would redden, as it struck him suddenly that the man who slipped might have hurt himself. 
and then he would be all kindness and sympathy. For it was impossible to be with him for ten minutes without realizing the tenderness of his heart. You felt that it would be impossible to ask him to do anything he would not gladly do, and if, perhaps, at first, his heartiness would make it difficult to go to him in your spiritual needs, you could be sure in all practical affairs of his attention, sympathy, and good sense. He was a man whose purse was always open to the indigent, and whose time was always at the service of those who wanted it. And yet, perhaps, it is unjust to say that in the affairs of the soul his help would not be very effectual. For though he could not speak to you, like the old Frenchman, with the authority of a church that has never admitted doubt, or with the compelling fire of the aesthetic, he would share your distress with such a candid sympathy, consoling you with his own hesitations, less a minister of God than a halting, tremulous man of the same flesh as yourself, who sought to share with you the hope and the consolation with which his own soul was refreshed, that perhaps in his own way he had something as good to offer as the other. His story was a little unusual. He had been a soldier, and he was pleased to talk of the old days when he had hunted with the corn, and danced through the London season. He had no unhealthy feelings of past sin. I was a great dancer in my young days, he said, but I expect I should be quite out of it now with all these new dances. It was a good life, so long as it lasted, and though he did not for a moment regret it, he had no feeling of resentment for it. The call had come when he was in India. He did not exactly know how or why. It had just come, a sudden feeling that he must give up his life to bringing the heathen to the belief in Christ. But it was a feeling that he could not resist. It gave him no peace. He was a happy man now, enjoying his work. It's a slow business, he said, but I see signs of progress, and I love the Chinese. I wouldn't change my life here for any in the world. The two missionaries said good-bye to one another. When are you going home? asked the Englishman. Moi? In a day or two. I may not see you again, then. I expect to go home in March. But one meant the little town with its narrow streets where he had lived for fifty years. Since when he left France, a young man, he left it forever. But the other meant the Elizabethan house in Cheshire, with its smooth lawns and its oak trees, where his ancestors had dwelt for three centuries. 9. THE INN It seems long since the night fell, and for an hour a coolie has walked before your chair carrying a lantern. It throws a thin circle of light in front of you, and as you pass you catch a pale glimpse, like a thing of beauty emerging vaguely from the ceaseless flux of common life, of a bamboo thicket, a flash of water in a rice-field, or the heavy darkness of a banyan. Now and then a belated peasant bearing two heavy baskets on his yoke sidles by. The bearers walk more slowly, but after the long day they have lost none of their spirit, and they chatter gaily. They laugh, and one of them breaks into a fragment of a tuneless song. But the causeway rises, and the lantern throws its light suddenly on a whitewashed wall. You have reached the first miserable houses that straggle along the path outside the city wall, and two or three minutes more bring you to a steep flight of steps. The bears take them at a run. You pass through the city gates. The narrow streets are multitudinous, and in the shops they are busy still. The bears shout raucously. The crowd divides, and you pass through a double hedge, 
of serried, curious people. Their faces are impassive, and their dark eyes stare mysteriously. The bearers, their day's work done, march with a swinging stride. Suddenly they stop, wheel to the right, into a courtyard, and you have reached the inn. Your chair is set down. The inn, it consists of a long yard, partly covered, with rooms opening on it on each side, is lit by three or four oil lamps. They throw a dim light immediately around them, but make the surrounding darkness more impenetrable. All the front of the yard is crowded with tables, and at these people are packed, eating rice or drinking tea. Some of them play games you do not know. At the great stove, where water in a cauldron is perpetually heating, and rice in a huge pan being prepared, stand the persons of the inn. They serve out rapidly great bowls of rice, and fill the teapots which are incessantly brought them. Further back, a couple of naked coolies, sturdy, thick-set, and supple, are sluicing themselves with boiling water. You walk to the end of the yard where, facing the entrance but protected from the vulgar gaze by a screen, is the principal guest-chamber. It is a spacious, windowless room, with a floor of trodden earth, lofty, for it goes the whole height of the inn, with an open roof. The walls are whitewashed, showing the beams, so that they remind you of a farmhouse in Sussex. The furniture consists of a square table, with a couple of straight-backed wooden armchairs, and three or four wooden pallets covered with matting on the least dirty of which you will presently lay your bed. In a cup of oil a taper gives a tiny point of light. They bring you your lantern, and you wait while your dinner is cooked. The bearers are merry now that they have set down their loads. They wash their feet, and put on clean sandals, and smoke their long pipes. How precious, then, is the inordinate length of your book, for you are travelling light, and you have limited yourself to three. And how jealously you read every word of every page, so that you may delay as long as possible the dreaded moment when you must reach the end. You are mightily thankful, then, to the authors of long books, and when you turn over their pages, reckoning how long you can make them last, you wish they were half as long again. You do not ask, then, for the perfect lucidity which he who runs may read, a complicated phraseology which makes it needful to read the sentence a second time to get its meaning is not unwelcome. A profusion of metaphor, giving your fancy ample play, a richness of illusion affording you the delight of recognition, are then qualities beyond price. Then, if the thought is elaborate without being profound, for you have been on the road since dawn, and of the forty miles of that day's journey you have footed it more than half, you have the perfect book for the occasion. But the noise of the inn suddenly increases to a din, and looking out you see that more travellers, a party of Chinese in sedan-chairs, have arrived. They take the rooms on each side of you, and through the thin walls you hear their loud talking far into the night. With a lazy, restful eye, your whole body conscious of the enjoyment of lying in bed, taking a sensual pleasure in its fatigue, you follow the elaborate pattern of the transom. The dim lamp in the yard shines through the torn paper with which it is covered, and its intricate design is black against the light. At last everything is quiet but for a man in the next room who is coughing painfully. It is the peculiar, repeated cough of phthisis, and hearing it at intervals through the night you wonder how long the poor devil can live. 
you rejoice in your own rude strength. Then a cock crows loudly, just behind your head, it seems, and not far away a bugler blows a long blast on his bugle, a melancholy wail. The inn begins to stir again, lights are lit, and the coolies make ready their loads for another day. 10. THE GLORY HOLE it is a sort of little cubicle in a corner of the chandler's store, just under the ceiling, and you reach it by a stair which is like a ship's companion. It is partitioned off from the shop by matchboarding, about four feet high, so that when you sit on the wooden benches that surround the table, you can see into the shop with all its stores. Here are coils of rope, oilskins, heavy sea boots, hurricane lamps, hams, tinned goods, liquor of all sorts, curios to take home to your wife and children, clothes, I know not what. There is everything that a foreign ship can want in an eastern port. You can watch the Chinese, salesmen and customers, and they have a pleasantly mysterious air, as though they were concerned in nefarious business. You can see who comes into the shop, and since it is certainly a friend, bid him to join you in the glory hole. Through the wide doorway you see the sun beating down on the stone pavement of the roadway, and the coolies scurrying past with their heavy loads. At about midday the company begins to assemble, two or three pilots, Captain Thompson, Captain Brown, old men who have sailed the China Seas for thirty years, and now have a comfortable billet ashore, the skipper of a tramp from Shanghai, and the taipans of one or two tea-firms. The boy stands silently waiting for orders, and he brings the drinks and the dice-box. Talk flows rather prosily at first. A boat was wrecked the other day, going to Fuchow. That fellow McLean, the engineer of the Anchan, has made a pot of money in rubber lately. The council's wife is coming out from home in the Empress. But by the time the dice-box has travelled round the table, and the loser has signed the chit, the glasses are empty, and the dice-box is reached for once more. The boy brings the second round of drinks. Then the tongues of the stolid, stubborn men are loosened a little, and they begin to talk of the past. One of the pilots knew the port first hard on fifty years ago. Ah, those were the great days. That's when you ought to have seen the glory hole, he says with a smile. Those were the days of the tea-clippers, when there would be thirty or forty ships in the harbor, waiting for their cargo. Everyone had plenty of money to spend then, and the glory hole was the center of life in the port. If you wanted to find a man, why, you came to the glory hole, and if he wasn't there, he'd be sure to come along soon. The agents did their business with the skippers there, and the doctor didn't have office hours. He went to the glory hole at noon, and if anyone was sick, he attended to him there and then. Those were the days when men knew how to drink. They would come at midday and drink all through the afternoon, a boy bringing them a bite if they were hungry, and drink all through the night. Fortunes were lost and won in the glory hole, for there were gamblers then, and a man would risk all the profits of his run in a game of cards. Those were the good old days. But now the trade was gone, the tea-clippers no longer thronged the harbor, the port was dead, and the young men, the young men of the A.P.C., or of Jardines, turned up their noses at the glory hole. And as the old pilot talked, that dingy little cubicle with its stained table seemed to be for a moment peopled with those old skippers, hardy, reckless, and adventurous, of a day that has gone for ever. 
End of section four.